Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Significant is health anxiety in the modern age, and why is psychosomatic illness seen as such a socially unacceptable disorder? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack these questions with two thought-provoking and robust writers. One a philosopher, the other a consultant neurologist. The winner of the 2016 Welcome Book Prize, Dr. Susanna O'Sullivan, discusses her fascinating first book, It's All in Your Head, True Stories of Imaginary Illness, published by Vintage Books. And Clancy Martin talks love, obsession and all the sleaze, as revealed in his entertaining new novel, Love in Central America, published by Harville Secker. This is a show about pain, suffering, addiction and desire. But first... Can we ever fully know our lovers? And should we? So I'm Clancy Martin. I'm a Canadian now living in the United States. I write about philosophy. I write novels. And I also write quite a bit in the popular media. I'm mostly writing um, fiction at the moment. Really well done on the book, uh, Clancy. It's, uh, I have to say it's an exhilarating read. A tremendous amount of sex and booze and quality hotels in this book. It is uh, magical escapism and a very, a very um, enjoyable read. I was interested to read that you began this book as a memoir and then it evolved into a fiction. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I was with my wife up in um, a Buddhist monastery in the kind of the mid-level Himalayas as we're elevation as the uh, first Everest-based camp, a monastery called Kungri Monastery in the Spiti Valley in the far northern India. And we were in a, a Tibetan Buddhist ceremony that was conducted entirely in Tibetan, so we couldn't understand the language, and we both had our journals. My wife, Amy Baradale, is also a writer, and I was recovering from a relationship I'd been in immediately before meeting my wife. And she suggested to me, why don't you just write the story of your last relationship? So I did. And that's 
basically it was written entirely in that monastery. And then when I got back to the United States, I sent it to my agent and to uh, a friend who'd been an editor of a previous book of mine. And they both said, wow, this is fantastic, but if you publish it as it is, no one will ever speak to you again. And so I decided to rewrite it as fiction and... I changed the male character, me, into a female character, and wound up changing an awful lot of stuff, of course, as one does. But, yeah, that's the story. It was really self-preservation. Another, I sent it to another friend, uh, a great writer, and she told me, you should absolutely publish it exactly the way that it is. You shouldn't change a word. But she, although a very famous writer, I can't mention her name, she also has suffered terribly in her career from being too honest and uh, now kind of lives uh, lives a very secluded life as a consequence of her honesty. So I thought, well, even though I trust her advice at some level, she's also a cautionary tale. Cheating on your husband is a lot like doing cocaine. It's rarely pleasurable, but try quitting. It's a tremendous line, um, <laughs> Clancy. I loved it. But it got me thinking, is love a drug? Well, I think that... Falling in love certainly is an awful lot like a drug. And, you know, I suppose insofar as we take these things seriously, they've done a lot of neuro studies that show that the kinds of chemicals that are activated in your brain when you're falling in love are similar to a variety of um, different drugs that people like to take. I mean, they're just blasting away in your brain when you're falling in love. And I think that when we think of the, you know, really intense, brief erotic love, it is very similar to taking a drug with all of the problems that come with taking drugs, drug addiction, that kind of thing. Now, it may also be the case that sustained erotic love in marriage has drug-like components. I know for me, I think a major reason that I was able to get off antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs, which I started taking as a consequence of my alcoholism, was really the love I have for my wife and children. So I think that the the, the answer is yes, love is emphatically like a drug. And the question is, um, what kind of love and what kind of drug? You know, there there are good drugs and bad drugs, and there's uh, good love and bad love. Well, sex is quite a drug in in a way in this novel and it plays a pretty big part. And Brett, Paul and Edward, your three um, main protagonists, all of them have a very dirty, sleazy side to them. I'm just wondering, what was that like pitching up these three very disparate and very uh, crazy characters? It's a it's a interesting... I'm definitely, I'm trying to show them at their most exposed during this incredibly difficult time. And I think that all of us, ordinary human beings, have times in our lives when you will sort of catch us at our worst, I suppose. And they might be some of the most stressful times in our lives. And they might be, you know, times when you're falling in love, cheating, suffering from addiction of some kind. You know, Brett, part of her problem is that she's an alcoholic. And she thinks that she's recovered, and then she falls in love, and uh, she realizes that she is not, has not recovered. So I think the situation is bringing out the worst in Brett, Edward, and Paul. Now, Edward, uh, I have quite a bit of sympathy in my heart for Brett and Paul both. Edward, not so much, Um, but I'm sure that Edward, at the end of the day, has his good qualities, too. It's just, uh, 
I was less concerned about understanding the sympathetic side of Edward's nature than I was in the, the sympathetic side of Brett and Paul's. And Brett and Paul, I hope it comes through in the novel, um, have been happier, have been better people, and but just find themselves, um, Brett, because of making some bad decisions that she is unable to correct, and then Paul, because of being married to somebody who's making some really bad decisions, um, are, are sort of incapable of sort of showing their better sides. But Edward... I don't know if we ever really get to see Edward's better side. And Brett and Paul are married and um, Edward is uh, uh, Brett's lover on the side. They take a lot of drugs, very, very heavy duty sex, some very rough play. And I'm just wondering, some of your readers may find that a lot to take and would find it a little off tune. What do you say to that? Well, yes, I I think some readers have found it to be a little bit intense. And um, I suppose all I can say is that I'm I'm showing a particular, as a writer, as an artist, I'm trying to show a particular kind of erotic experience, uh, a particularly intense, I think, um, kind of erotic experience that hopefully has aspects of what it is like to fall in love for anybody who falls in love, particularly maybe the experience of first love, which is one that I find fascinating. This was not first love for Brett when she falls in love with Edward. She has fallen in love before, but, you know, in some ways, falling in love always has those elements of the the first lover who is discovering this new territory for the first time. Anybody who's fallen in love more than once has had the feeling that, oh, I've, I've forgotten that life could be like this. I'd forgotten that love could be like this, you know, that kind of intensity of being alive, as opposed to most of us might live our ordinary lives kind of feeling like we're skating on the surface of reality, but suddenly they are deep down in it, like Dionysian reality in, in Nietzsche's sense of Dionysus, really living, breathing experience. For my purposes, putting them in those extreme circumstances does help to illustrate that kind of intensity of experience, but also for those readers who who feel like, no, this is just too much. I mean, there are there are other less intense accounts of love, and we're all familiar with them. And uh, maybe maybe those are better suited to those readers. Well, frankly, I, I really enjoyed the book. Um, you know, and if you want a less intense read, well, maybe I go out to the garden with some uh, some other stuff. But I was just wondering, you raise a lot of very provocative questions about the nature of love, the nature of intimacy, the nature of relationships and, and how we understand our lovers. Is it ever possible, really, Clancy, to actually fully understand another person and especially somebody that you're very sexually drawn to? Is that part of the whole deal that you just have to live and spaciously live with the mysteries that surround people? And maybe if you do get to know them on that true intimate level, that that's when it all dissolves. Yeah, I uh, those two uh, intimately related and equally fascinating questions. A, a Buddhist thinker I very much admire, a fellow named Trungpa Rinpoche, observes that we are all fundamentally lonely, and then he goes on to say, the deeper the loneliness, the deeper the love. And I think there's something very important to that observation that we can all sympathize with, whether it is love for our parents, love for our partners, or love for our children. The more you love them, the more you recognize, okay, this person is fundamentally different, unknowable to me, and I have to be okay with that in order to love them properly. You know, 
So I think the, the short answer is no, we cannot ever know anybody else. And we don't feel that acutely until we are loving them. And the more we love them, the more acutely we feel it. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be aware of our of our loneliness in that way. That's a little bit of a step in the right direction of being as human as possible. Because other people are suffering from the same loneliness we are, you know, and you have to acknowledge that and, and recognize that we all have to we all have to take care of each other, even though we are in these lonely worlds of ours. Now, your more, in a way, more provocative question, does the sexual tension disappear when we no longer have that mysterious element of the unknowable? Or if, if you know, familiarity sort of breeding contempt, I suppose. I, I don't know. I think that certainly... That discovering of a new territory of another human being is extremely exciting. And an erotic experience, you know, where everybody has to admit it's just great. It's like I, I often tell my students, the, you know, you make a long list of your experiences, ranking them from best to worst, and if it makes sense to make such a list at all, and you will see that the first time you kiss somebody is always up at the top of those experiences. I mean, there's just nothing like it the first time you kiss somebody. It's, it's a very unique human experience. But also, I think that the richer kinds of experiences that we have of love, even erotic love, wind up involving this kind of increasing investigation into the unknowability of some other human being. So, in other words, if you're feeling familiarity with someone else, someone else you love, I think that's just because you're not paying attention. You're just getting bored of yourself. You're really not doing a good job of investigating that other person. Because if you really try to investigate another person because you love them, you will find them inexhaustible. They are even more confusing than you are, because at least in your own case, You've been stuck with yourself for 30, 40, 50 years, but then you're only beginning to know. It's an interesting area. (laughs) It's very hard. There's so many unknowns in falling in love, though. Can I ask you about addiction? Because one of the key themes in the book is um, Brett's secret drinking and then her downward spiral where she becomes completely chaotic. Within any relationship, there's highs and lows. And, you know, addiction can come into a relationship in all sorts of ways. Do you think it's possible to navigate a loving relationship with such a heavy duty addiction? Or do you think they eventually become a barrier because in this story um in this story it's um one chaotic downward spiral and i'm just wondering can we apply that broadly or was that something that you were trying or attempting to deconstruct in some way yeah i do think that being in a relationship with someone who is suffering from an addiction is much more difficult um at least in some ways than being in a relationship with someone who is not so that's the first thing i would say is that you know it's tough to be in a relationship with someone who has an addiction and i i can say that really only from watching people who've been in relationships with me i have been in relationships with people who have had uh problems substance abuse problems basically always alcohol but, I, you know, I've always been sort of worse off than they were, so I've been the more challenging one. And I know it's really hard for them. Now, I do think, however, that I have to believe, because of my own experience, that, you know, putting the effort into an addict is worth it. 
And sometimes it's inevitable. I mean, if it's your child, for example, and possibly also your parent, you're not going to just, hopefully you're not going to just write that person off because of their addiction. But with partners, we do have this option of just writing the person off, no longer engaging with them. I think that for me, the story of Brett and her addiction is about her starting to recognize how much damage she's doing to other people, how much damage she's doing to herself, how how low she can sink as long as she continues to let herself be a victim of her own addiction. Now, the people around her who are trying to help her, they are victimized by her. And um, why did they stick around? I suppose all she can do is hope that they think that it'll be worth it at the end of the day, sticking around. And if um, if they don't, you know, she has to take responsibility for the fact that they haven't. So I guess the answer to your question is, I do think that staying in a relationship with an addicted person, I have to believe is going to be worth it, but it's not going to be easy. And, well, I don't know if there's more for me to say to it than that. I do... I did want to, in the book, illustrate both how difficult it is to be in love with Brett and show that Brett doesn't have anybody at the end of the day to blame other than herself, which can be very hard for an addict to realize. And again, that's something I, I wrestled with very intensely myself with my own struggle with alcoholism. As I said earlier, there's no heroes or heroines in this novel, but they are incredibly interesting characters. Within all of that, there isn't a huge amount of forgiveness or grace or humility in how your three characters certainly understand the world and the mistakes they have made in their marriages. I'm just wondering, what were you trying to say with within the storyline on marriage? I know that the um, Brett, um's best friend, Sadie, makes a comment about her own marriage breakup. And she says, when I left my first husband for another man, it was only because my husband was sad and the new man was happy. Every time I walked into the room, he lit up. The reason your marriage ends can be that simple. Do you actually believe that? I do believe that. I do believe that it can be that simple and that quick and um, that sort of apparently meaningless, although um, there's probably a much richer subtext there. As anyone who's dealt with someone who's sort of chronically sad or chronically depressed might attest. But what I was trying to do vis-a-vis the question of marriage and relationships and in the book was absolutely to show, and I'm really glad you picked that particular text because it does show it, to show the fragility of those relationships, how incredibly careful we have to be and watchful, vigilant, if we want to succeed in long-term erotic relationships. One of the reasons I love marriage as a case study in love and um, long-term erotic relationships generally is that unlike many other loving relationships, they have this heightened fragility. You know, when it comes to the love of our children, although we're also very, very mindful, very watchful, very vigilant of, of how they feel about us, you do feel like there's a kind of endurance uh, with the love you have for your parents. You take it for granted a little bit, but similarly, you have this confidence that comes from some mysterious link. And similarly with our friends, you kind of feel like if one of your friends doesn't love you anymore, then you are better off without that friend. But you don't feel that way about a lover. 
so I wanted to illustrate the, the fragility in a variety of different ways. The fragility in terms of attack, you know, when Brett and Edward first sleep together, the thing she says to Edward is, I'm in love with my husband. And he says, I know. Nevertheless, she does what she does, which someone who has been in a similar circumstance will confirm the truth. And people do this even though, and even though she loves Paul the whole time. Nevertheless, she makes these kinds of decisions, which is just the way, unfortunately, that it works. And I think St. Augustine got this right when he said the greatest part of virtue lies in avoiding the opportunities for vice. I think that's exactly right, but it can be very difficult to learn that lesson. And what about complacency within all of that? Do you think that we're possibly in times, whether it's in our relationships, friendships, marriages, whatever it is, that we get into that kind of complacent state that we actually don't think about the consequences of it? That's just coasting and that sense of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And really that there are consequences to that and big ones too. I think that's exactly right. The flip side of this is complacency, not recognizing one's obligation to be careful to be careful not just for one's own sake, but for the sake of the people that you love. And yes, absolutely, I think that complacency taking for granted is what creates these opportunities